Would you turn to Mark 13? We'll continue uh, with the studies of the end times. Mark 13, and we'll be going, believe it or not, through a big chunk this time from verse 14 to verse 23. So Mark 13 from verse 14 to verse um, 23. Let's read it together. So starting from verse 14, and, it, and the word of God says, But when you see the abomination of desolation, standing where it should not be, let the reader understand. Then those who are in Judea must flee to the mountains. The one who is on the housetop must not go down or go in to get anything out of his house. And the one who is in the field must not turn back to get his coat. But woe to those who are pregnant and to those who are nursing babies in those days. But pray that it may not happen in the winter. For those days will be a time of tribulation such as has not occurred since the beginning of the creation which God created until now. And never will be, unless the Lord has shortened those days, no life would have been saved. For the but for the sake of the elect, whom He chose, He shortened the days. And if anyone says to you, "Behold, here is the Christ," or "Behold, He is there," do not believe him. For false Christs and false prophets will arise and will show signs and wonders in order to lead astray, if possible, the elect. But take heed. Behold, I have told you everything in advance. Now, if you've been following the news lately, or for <laughs> any point in time, really, you'll know that. There is unsettled relationship uh, between Israel and the neighboring nations. From Palestine to Syria to Iran, from Lebanon to Egypt, the entire Arab nations want nothing less than the destruction of Israel. We know that. And, and there is hatred in there, and this hatred has continued to intensify um, this unsettled relationship. Now, who's behind his hatred in this Arab's heart towards Israel? It's, it's Satan, Satan himself. Ever since Satan knew that Israel was chosen by God and that the Savior will, who will redeem the world uh, is going to come out of Israel, out of this Jewish nation, Satan has always wanted to destroy Israel. Why? Because if the Jewish nation is destroyed, the Savior wouldn't have come. And if the Savior wouldn't have come, Satan would have succeeded in bringing God's redemptive plan to a halt. But aren't you glad that he failed miserably? Now again, and ever since the resurrection of Christ, Satan has aggressively attacked Israel. Many different times of history where he did that. Why? Because by destroying the nation of Israel, Satan would prevent God's promises from being fulfilled. 
Israel won't be restored. And Satan would look like that somehow he overcome God's sovereign reign. That's exactly what Satan loves to do and perhaps um, prolong his period here on earth. And one of the um, things that Satan did in order to um, um, attack Israel is that, that he set up this false religion called Islam. It's one of its main goals is to destroy Israel. And so because of Islam, and through the Arab nations, violence will continue to escalate against Israel, leading up to the last seven years of the tribulation period. And in the meanwhile, even just preceding the end times, the Antichrist will assume leadership of a revived Roman Empire. So that Roman Empire will be revived. Satan, uh, sorry, the Antichrist will be heading 10 powerful nations of this empire. And I believe this is going to happen even before the rapture. I believe there's going to have to be an overlap period between the church age and the installment of the Antichrist to be a powerful leader. Uh, we are going to witness just the beginning of the time when the Antichrist um, will be in the influential role just before the rapture. Why? Because Israel won't flee to him to be delivered from the aggression of the Arab nation during a seven-year period. No, it'll happen at the beginning of this seven-year period. So Antichrist would have to be in a powerful, influential office for some time, and he has earned some credibility for Israel to trust him just at the time before they start this seven-year period when they sign a treaty with the Antichrist. And once the treaty is signed, and for the first three and a half years, the Antichrist will issue a rescue operation. During his time, he will crush Egypt and uh, all the African nations. That's the south. And if you recall, we read this in Daniel. And he will also severely wound Syria, Iraq, Iran, and Russia. And that's the northern nation. And while Israel will think, yes, we can breathe now. Now we have peace. Now we can enjoy the blue sky and the green trees but little will they know that their worst nightmare will only just going to begin at this point. The Antichrist will establish his base in Israel. He will show his true colors and he will place himself in their temple as God and he will demand every man and woman to worship him. And God says this is abominable. This is repulsive. For anyone to reign in my temple is loathsome. It's abhorrent in my sight. The Antichrist is the abomination that will cause desolation. This is where we left last time. And this is what will mark the midpoint of the seven-year period of the end times. But then what happens? What happens after this point? So far, we looked at what happens in the first three years. Then we looked at the midpoint of this three-year, seven-year period. 
and then um, now, as the as the narrative continues, what we're going to look at in uh, in in this message, three things. All right, that we're going to look at the uh, the the outline for today's message will be this: the wrath to flee, protection decreed. So take heed. Simple, right? Wrath to flee, that's the wrath of the Antichrist, but there is protection decreed by God, and so take heed. Well, what does that mean? We'll look at it in the first, uh, starting from that first point. Wrath to flee. At the midpoint of the tribulation period, this blue sky will turn black on Israel. The green trees will be sprayed with their red blood as the Antichrist will unleash all his fury on the Jews in those days. So we read in verse 14 and it says this, But when you see the abomination of desolation standing where it should not be, let the reader understand. When you see, Jesus says, as soon as you see it, what do you do? Continues on, read the text, it says, Then those who are in Judea must flee to the mountains. You guys who live in Judea, listen, fleeing is not an option. You must flee, must run for your life. Hide in the caves of the mountains. How come? Well, this Antichrist is like a Trojan horse. Once you let him in, he will go into your temple in the very heart of Israel and he will leave you vulnerable for his attacks. The Antichrist will coordinate his warfare from the inside of the city. And please note, attacking whom? Those who are in Judea. That's what Jesus is saying. Those who are in Judea. Those who are in the nearest to the temple, no matter their belief. The Antichrist won't care really whether those Jews are Christians or not Christians. The Antichrist will not take any prisoners. He will not take any hostages. He will unleash exceptional rage against all Jews and he will go for the kill. Particularly those that are closest to the temple. All the Jews that welcomed the Antichrist in their country at the beginning of their treaty, when they, when they signed this treaty, will find themselves in the greatest danger from this Antichrist. In fact, turn to Zechariah 13 verse 8. Zechariah 13 verse 8. And it says this, it will come about in all the land. This all the land is not all the land of the world. In the context of Zechariah 13, it speaks of Judea. In all the land, declares Yahweh, that two parts in it will be cut off and perish. But the third will be left in it. Two thirds of the Jews won't be spared from this massacre. It will be a horrific time for those Jews at that time. We are talking about millions upon millions of Jews that will be slaughtered by the Antichrist. I mean, all the holocausts of the Jews throughout human history will be like a, a drop of blood compared to what is coming upon them during this time. 
at the second half of the seven-year period, it will be a bloodbath. The ground will be soaked with the Jewish blood. So yes, as we have um, um, studied before, there will be persecution, in fact, severe persecution against all Christians worldwide, but also those Jews in Judea, they will be like sitting ducks. Only one third of the Jews, it says, that they will heed Jesus' warning and they will flee. And even then, when they will flee, in verse 9 in Zechariah 13, it says, And I will bring the third part through the fire. So those who will flee, that one third, God is continuing on and saying here, Refine them as silver is refined. And test them as gold is tested. God will use the iron fist of the Antichrist to humble his Jews and to crush their stubbornness. And will continue on and says, And they will call on my name, and I will answer them. I will say, They are my people. And, I, and they will say, Yahweh is my God. It will lead to their salvation. Now back to Mark 13. This massacre um, won't be just horrific, but it will be lightning fast. It will be so swift, they won't know what hit them. And because of this, don't just run away. But what does Jesus say? Flee. Those who are in Judea, must, what? Flee to the mountains. And this word flee can be translated as the word vanish, disappear. Um, another dictionary says that this word in Greek actually means quickly disappear. Just get out of sight. Fleeing is a matter of urgency. As soon as you see the Antichrist that will defile the temple, bolt out of this place. Leave at once. Then Jesus then gives a couple of examples just to help us understand the gravity of the state of emergency at this time. So in verse 15, Jesus says, The one who is in the housetop must not go down or go in, in to get anything out of his house. Now just very quickly, take you back to the time of Jesus, even till today, in the Middle East, uh, normally the houses there have flat roof. And uh, back at that time of Jesus, the housetops were used as a place to relax. So people would go up there just to chill out. Um, it was like a glorified balcony, if you like, where people would go up in order to wind down. And Jesus is saying here that once you get the news that the Antichrist is in the temple, there is no time to waste. Every moment counts. Ah, oh, but I, I, I just need to go quickly to get my gold from under the tiles. No, don't. Uh, what about my credit card? My iPhone? I need it. I've got to text people. I've got to, you know, uh, do a video and take a video and uh, post it on Facebook. No. If you want to leave, if you want to leave, what do you have to do? Leave them behind. Hit the road running. Well, since I'm fleeing, well, I guess probably I need my passport. 
I, I need my birth certificate or something. Well, one minute delay and you will have your death certificate. Leave all your belonging, even the most precious things to you. Your life is at stake. Flee. Flee the wrath of the Antichrist. Flee the wrath to come. And verse 16, Jesus continues and he says, And the one who is in the field must not turn back to get his coat. So there will be people in the field harvesting. There will be road workers, people putting cables, fixing pipes, building bridges. And even if their coats were lying two meters away from them, Jesus saying, leave it behind, run. Oh, but my jacket is Gucci, man. Like it's expensive. I can't leave that behind. Fine, go grab it if you want to be another statistic. Do you want to be counted as one of these two-thirds of Israel that will perish? No? Then leave it behind. Flee the wrath. It's not worth it. Run for your life. The wrath of the Antichrist is like the lightning that will strike immediately after th thunders. The bullets have already begun firing. The bombs are dropping in the midair. The rockets have launched. Flee the wrath. Destruction is imminent. And then Jesus continues and he says in verse 17, But woe to those who are pregnant and to those who are nursing babies in those days. Now this word woe here doesn't mean it's a sin for women to be pregnant at that time and to have babies. No, it's not a, a woe of condemnation. It's a woe of pity. So Jesus' heart here is, uh, as always, uh, it moves with compassion, especially um, towards the weakest of the weak. Why pity them? Well, obviously, the pregnant and the nursing babies will find it hard to move fast. I mean, they're, they're, they're going to flee, but their fleeing will be in slow motion, right? So they will be the most vulnerable. And the Antichrist won't play a fair game. He won't say, oh, listen, you, you women, you pregnant women, uh, I'm going to take it easy on you because you're an easy target. He's not going to say, oh, look, you know, I'm going to give you a couple of hours of grace period to run and find shelter somewhere. No. It, it won't be a hide and seek game. They will be the first to be captured and they will be the first to be killed. But, but there is something else in his verse and unfortunately, not many commentaries are really mentioning it. Uh, when you read it carefully, you won't, you will find that Jesus did not mention anything about elderly or so disabled people at that time. I mean, they're going to be very slow in fleeing, right? The disabled and the elderly. How come Jesus didn't mention them? How is it that he only mentioned the pregnant women and um, the nursing babies? Well, I'm going to tell you about um, a heart-wrenching image, imagery that the Bible spoke about in the Old Testament, and it kind of exposes the enormity of the wrath that is to come. In Hosea three, sorry, Hosea thirteen sixteen, it says this: "Their little ones will be dashed in pieces, and their pregnant women will be ripped open." Crazy stuff. 
This happened at a time when Nebuchadnezzar has attacked Israel, the Assyrian Empire as well. And just like the time when Moses and Jesus were born, both Pharaoh and Herod slaughtered many infants, so will the time um, of uh, the Antichrist also will be. It will be so heart-wrenching when the Antichrist, in the fury of his wrath, what will he do? He will smash his babies on the rocks and the unborn babies will be slashed in the wombs right before their own parents. What a horrible evil awaiting the people of Judea in those days. So Jesus continues and he says in verse 18, but pray that it may not happen in the winter. Well, what does it mean, pray that it may not happen in the winter? Simple, the idea here is that any little hindrance, any little, it will exponentially increase their vulnerability. Whether colder weather, muddy ground, rain, snow, any of these, mean, any of these things will just hinder your escape. Aren't you glad that we're going to be raptured before these things happen? Aren't you glad that we're not waiting for the Antichrist to come? We're waiting for the Christ to come. We don't need to wait for the Antichrist to destroy us. We're waiting for our Christ to save us and to take us home. Now we'll continue with the narrative and then Jesus says here something beautiful. Well, <laughs> Remarkable, I should say, not so much beautiful. He pulls everything together in his verse now, in that single verse, and he summarizes the entire content of, of what he said thus far in that one single statement in verse 19. And he says this, For those days will be a time of tribulation, such as has not occurred since the beginning of the creation, which God created until now and never will. It will be so severe that nothing in history would ever come close to this time. And Jesus here most definitely speaking regarding the end times. It will be unparalleled, unprecedented time in all of human history. It will be a time of wrath, blood of blood, terror on every side. So what does Jesus say? Flee from the wrath of the Antichrist. Now friends, if, if you're not saved, let me ask you a question. If the wrath of a mere creature could cause such great torment, how much all the more the mighty ferocious wrath of the Lord of hosts the wrath that God will pour down upon every sinner who is not in Christ. If it would make sense to flee a temporal wrath of a frail creature such as the Antichrist, his wrath will only be as short as three and a half years. How much all the more we ought to flee the eternal wrath of God whose holy anger is burning hot against your sin if you are not in Christ. 
So I plea with you, flee the wrath of God, which is far more severe than any wrath that anyone would experience from this Antichrist. Flee, flee into the loving arms of Christ. Let the mighty and the awesome Jesus be your mountain of safety. Let him be your shelter. Let him be your refuge from that day of calamity that will surely come upon you if you do not hide in Christ. The wrath to flee. Now, will God leave his people in his vulnerable state? Obviously not. Obviously not. Protection decreed. We'll come to the second point. Protection decreed. We're going to look at God's care for his elect, how God would do anything to protect the elect from complete destruction. Even in those evil days, God's eyes will always be upon his elect. And we read that in verse 20. He says this, Unless the Lord has shortened those days, no life would have been saved. Now, I don't believe that this word saved here is in relation to having eternal life. Uh, why? Because no hardship could ever stop anyone from coming to Christ. Our salvation, spiritual salvation, is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. And no wrath of Antichrist would ever hinder anyone from coming to Christ. I believe what Jesus is saying here is that, that no elect would ever physically survive the lethal assault of the Antichrist had God put a time limit to this devastation. Three and a half years to be exact. From the time the Antichrist will turn on Israel to the return of Christ to rule and reign on earth. Three and a half years. The whole world would self-destruct. The human race will come to an end, and this is how intense the warfare is going to be in those days. But, as Jesus continues here, for the sake of the elect whom he chose, he shortened the days. For the sake of the elect. Who are the elect? Simple it is those people who later on will believe in Christ and be saved. And the elect here means that they must have been chosen. Now, when did God choose them? Ephesians 1.4 tells us that before the foundation of the world, that's when God chose them. This means, if I would um, translate this verse somehow another way of saying it i would say this those that god set his love upon before time began are so important to him that he will shorten those days for their sake how glorious everything god does in his broken world is for the sake of the elect he created them for his glory and for their joy meaning for their sake. And when they became wicked and defiled because of sin, he gave up his only begotten son for their sake. And even when we were so wicked and we couldn't even exercise faith on our own to come to Christ, even the most simple thing in life as faith is, 
and we, we could not exercise it, what did God do? He drew his elect to Christ for their sake. And he causes them to be born again. And he puts in them this saving faith. And at the end times, for their sake, God will move with love. And he will restructure times and seasons and thus shorten those days to protect them for their sake. How awesome is this truth? How great is God's protective love for his elect? This ought to cause our jaws to drop in awe of God. In one hand, God has his elect, even those who are not yet saved. And on the other hand, time, seasons, and days. And if one hand has to be compromised, what God is saying here is that God would gladly be willing to sacrifice these normal days and seasons and shorten them for the sake of the elect, so that to save them from danger. I want to tell you that this puts the promise of Romans 8.28 in a right perspective, does it not? Where in Romans 8.28, we read and it says, We know that God causes all things to work together for good. And that includes changing times and seasons. To those who love God, to those who are called according to His purpose. Now back. To Mark 13 and to those who are in Judea. So back to the future. The siren of destruction went off. The police won't need a search warrant to get you. The drones are already up in the air and they are turned on the search and destroy mode. The satellites are tracing your footsteps. Police dogs are at loose and you're now climbing the mountains. And with every breath you take, your hope of being saved is evaporating before your eyes. You remember that you had left your children behind and, and your pregnant wife, you last saw her at the bottom of this mountain. And every minute you're in a hide, it feels like forever. And your eyes are becoming like fountain of tears. Yet you know that you've got to stay low for three and a half years. I mean, to say that this will be an emotionally draining time is an understatement. And in this time of desperation, people will be so vulnerable to believe anything. And the Antichrist will want to know where you're hiding, which cave are you sheltered in. And so do you know what he will do? Verse 21. And then if anyone says to you, behold, here is the Christ, or behold, he's there, do not believe him. The implication here is that the Antichrist will dispatch his minions in many spots and they will pretend to be prophets and others will pretend to be Christ's. And they, and they will say to you, here I am, I have come, your Savior has arrived, come out, it's over now. 
And once you cave in and buy into this lie and their deception, they will be your informers and they will snitch on your GPS location and, and the military would perhaps launch the rockets to where you're grouped. And so when these things happen, Jesus is saying, don't cave in. Don't choose the path of least resistance. Do not believe him. Why? Verse 22, for false Christ and false prophets will arise and will show signs and wonders. I mean, this is getting from bad to worse. From being baptized in this cataclysmic chaos that never occurred before in uh, human history to being taken advantage of by the false teachers because of the much uh, terror and desperation that you're in. But now it says that their deception won't be just words only. No. Awesome and convincing tricks. They will show signs and wonders. Now read with me. In order to lead astray, if possible, the elect. If possible. If. Praise God, it doesn't say in order to lead astray the elect. No, if possible. Praise God, it is impossible to lead astray the elect. Once you're an elect, you're always an elect. The elect will only hear the voice of, their, of the one who elected them. They're deaf to all other voices. Who would succeed in deceiving them? No one. The elect are the Father's gift to His eternal Son. Who would dare spoil the gift of the Father? The elect are held by the hand of the one who redeemed them. Who could snatch them out of His hands? Answer? No one. The elect, the Bible tells us in 1 Peter chapter 1, are protected by the power of God. So Jesus says, Hold to your post, soldiers. Don't give in to the lie. Do believe in, in the fact that God has his protective love over us? Do we believe that, brothers and sisters? Then shouldn't we be giving him all praise and all glory for his heart that beats with compassion, that is all tender and all caring for his elect? We should, should we not? How do we do that? Take heed. Take heed. Continue to persevere. Continue to believe what Jesus is saying to be true. And that's, that's the third point. We come to the third point now. So we looked at the wrath to flee. Protection decreed. And we praise God for his protection over our lives. If you're an elect you are under God's protection. God is your God. And so we come to the third. Take heed. Verse 23. Jesus gives the imperative and he says, But take heed. Behold, I have told you everything in advance. Take heed. Now think about it. You left your friends, your families behind. There's no gold, no silver for security. 
You've got absolutely nothing except the clothes on your back. What do you do to take heed? How? Just how do you take heed? I mean, it's easier on this side of persecution when you've got nothing that is really against you. You could hardly say that what we are experiencing is persecution. You may call it oppression, but certainly not persecution. It's easy to take heed. What happens when all hell will break loose? How do you take heed, brothers and sisters? Let me finish with this third point and let it be even our application for this message today. Take heed. How, Lord? Well, let me tell you the one thing that comes in mind that would strengthen us and helps us to take heed. Fellowship. Fellowship would be of most crucial element for your survival in such circumstances. And I'm not talking about theological jargon, this kind of useless and meaningless information that will not be helpful at the time of trial. I'm not talking about some debates that we kind of enjoy listening to. I am talking about real fellowship. I am talking about truth that would fill our hearts with the glory of Christ. That is the only thing that will matter the most during this hard time. Take heed. How do we take heed? Well, if we go back to the future with those brothers of ours that will be climbing the mountains, leaving everything at the bottom of the mountain, passports, phones, cars, houses, everything left, all their possessions and positions, all their status, everything that they held dear to, and now they're on their own walking up the mountain and they're devastated. Tears are coming out of their eyes. Their hearts are broken and are left helpless. If we would go with them into the caves where they are grouped, I would say that it wouldn't be unusual to hear conversations like this. The one would say to another brother, Please, brother, nourish my souls with the words of the scripture that would strengthen me, that would give me hope. Brother, I need you to tell me of my Savior and of his faithfulness to me. Remind me of his goodness. Speak to me of his great promises to me, that he will come back, that he will save us. And yet another brother will give words of comfort and would say, Brother, don't weep over your losses. Think of your eternal gain. You will see him whom you love. What a glorious day it's going to be, brother. Christ will himself wipe every tear from your eyes. You will get to hug him. He will bind your wounds. He will grant you eternal rewards and you will hear him saying to you with a smile on his face, Oh, my faithful slave, well done. 
And one will comfort another and would say, Brother, brother, the night is nearly gone, brother. Hold on. The morning is at hand and all the signs are pointing at his coming. We're almost there. Hang on. Our bridegroom will soon burst into the scene and every eye will see him. It's only a matter of short time left. Put a smile on your face. Let, let his joy fill your heart. Brothers, no matter how long the darkness is reigning over us, but when he comes, he will light up the sky with his presence. Very soon you will say goodbye to your sickness, to your sin. Very surely you will farewell your misery and your trials. Soon your heart will be filled with a victorious shout of praise. Take heed, Jesus says. Take heed. What does it mean to take heed? How do you take heed? I believe that they will be grouped together and they will pray together with one voice, crying out to Jesus and would say to him, Oh, come Lord Jesus. Oh, our Savior, come quickly. Your people are so eager to be with you. Take heed, brothers. Let us learn from them. Let us embrace this attitude in our hearts today, Lord, that, that we will cry to Lord Jesus and say to him, Come, Lord Jesus. Amen. Let's pray. Our Lord God, this is real. This is so real. The Antichrist will come and he will cause havoc and chaos. But it's not to say that Satan is not already at work, Lord. Even in this generation and in this culture and the oppression that is ever increasing and turning into a persecution. Oh Lord, we pray that we would have this heart attitude of those that will be found faithful waiting for you to come back and to snatch them and to save them from their danger. We pray, Lord, that even your church here today would cultivate such a heart that we would desire to fellowship in order to grow, in order for our hearts to be filled with the glory of Christ. Lord, give us, Lord, desire to fellowship, to talk of Christ and talk of his promises to comfort one another with the fact that Jesus is coming back, your son is coming back. He will rapture us. He will take us home. So that, so therefore, every decision we make, we make it for his glory. We make it count for eternity, Lord. Let us, Lord, have these eyes that would look beyond our circumstances into eternity and that every decision that we make, we say, well, Jesus is coming back and we want to hear from him saying to us, well done, well done, well and faithful servant. And we pray that this would be our attitude even today, Lord. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.